Good morning. Welcome. Uh, my name is Aaron, and I am the youth director here at One Life. Apparently, I'm a good one, too. Uh, so, uh, I have the privilege and opportunity to be speaking to the adults this morning, and uh, you'll get to see the high level of teaching that your kids are receiving. So we're in our fifth week of our study through Lamentations, um, and we're going through Lamentations as we observe the Lenten season and, and reflect back on ourselves and at this broken world and the need for a Savior. And Rich and I have often joked as we've talked about uh, Lamentations and my first sermon at One Life being on Lamentations. And, um, and it, uh, we've joked about how it's unfortunate and uh, it's, it's going to be tough and hopefully I can keep my job afterward. But, um, and it really is unfortunate for a couple reasons. Um, it's unfortunate because Lamentations is hardly easy to read, uh, let alone preach on. Um, and it's not just the subject matter of the book, but even that it's a book of poetry creates a unique challenge. If the New Testament letters are, are like a high-definition TV where uh, everything is clear and precise, then poetry, especially Lamentations, is like a Van Gogh. The beauty is not in every little detail, but it's in the picture as a whole and what it speaks to its viewer and the emotional response to the big picture. We can't take just one verse out of Lamentations and create a sermon around it, and we couldn't even take one chapter completely separate from the book and preach on that either. We must look at every part of this book uh, as being part of the whole, and we have to discern what this painting of Lamentations is speaking to us. And though it does seem unfortunate um, that this is the topic of my first sermon, uh, I'm not necessarily surprised, nor would I have expected God to act in any other way. And we all experience suffering, um, and, and suffering, it seems, has been a theme of my life. For over a decade, <clears throat> I suffered through depression, and still I often suffer through the effects that that had on my life. But I tell you uh, in full confidence uh, that I couldn't be more thankful for that. I couldn't be more thankful for the life that God has allowed me to live. I find uh, a great joy and peace in this life God has given me. And when I say joy, I don't mean uh, a happiness necessarily, uh, but I mean living in the reality of the hope that God has laid before us. And, and peace not being the absence of anything, but the presence of God in the midst of a fallen world, uh, the presence of God uh, in the midst of my sometimes broken life, all the time broken life. My life has been hard. Uh, I mean, life is just, it's hard. It's, it's just life. Um, and I have suffered, uh, 
But I have never and nor will I ever ask God to ease up or to uh, just make it all go away because I believe that in his wisdom, God has revealed that God has revealed the, the truth and beauty and the necessity of suffering. Today's going to be heavy. It's, it's going to be hard. Uh, there'll be a lot to think through. Um, but I'm not going to avoid what is difficult just for the sake of a, an ignorant pleasure. I admit that I don't know everything and, and that though I have suffered, uh, suffering itself still remains much a mystery. And I hope that you hear humility behind my words this morning uh, and it's my hope and intention that you will think deeply on this morning's topic. Uh, and to help you, I'm, I'm going to stir things up. I'm, I'm going to shake things up a little bit, uh, maybe ruffle your feathers uh, in hopes that you will really take hold of, of this idea of suffering and hope and, and really wrestle with it. Uh, so this morning we, we are going to be talking about suffering. Uh, let me pray for us before we get going. Father, thank you for this time, for this day, for this life you have provided in all its mysteries. Uh, we ask that you be with us now and provide understanding and insight. Uh, please help us to submit to your truth and to recognize that, that our thinking, that our wisdom falls short so often. So please meet us where we are and, and guide us through this life and through this morning. Help us to realize the truth of your son and what his presence on this earth meant and continues to mean. Uh, we thank you for his great sacrifice and, and the gift of your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So let me read through Lamentations 4 for you. Um, feel free to just sit back and listen and sort of soak in the words. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostrich in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk, their bodies more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children, they have become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. 
He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits. Of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourselves bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. So chapter 4 of Lamentations. Why? Why is it there? Why are we still suffering? Should not suffering end in chapter 3? This chapter, like the previous three, is an acrostic. It has that simple structure that reflects the human effort to contain suffering within understanding. To hold on to some sort of reason in a world where all reason seems lost. Yet at the same time, this poem's simple structure reveals that suffering is not without reason. This chapter is shorter than the chapters before, only two lines per verse. And though the acrostic structure is there, it is breaking down and diminishing. It's as if Zion is exhausted from her lament. What is unique about this poem is that for the first time, Zion takes an honest look at herself and the tragedy. The first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 16, is the narrator. It's the same voice that dominated chapters 1 and 2. The second part of the chapter, verses 17 through 22, is a new voice. It's the voice of the people. We can further divide this poem into four sections. Verses 1 through 10 is everything growing dim. Verses 11 through 16 is a retelling of the invasion of Jerusalem. And verses 17 through 20 is why this judgment has happened. And verses 21 and 22 are a call for justice. So how does this poem fit in with the painting? What's its role in this masterpiece of expressed suffering? We hear different voices throughout the book of Lamentations. 
but we should also recognize that, that this book is about Zion, that the focus of these poems is Jerusalem. In chapter 1, we see Zion screaming in anger and pain with no one around to comfort her. The narrator notices but stands at a distance as he listens to her outpouring. In chapter 2, the narrator can no longer just stand by and watch, so he approaches Zion, perhaps in an effort to comfort her, but he can offer her no comfort apart from joining her in her despair and encouraging her to vent. Chapter 3, Zion has stopped screaming and shouting. And her words become directed at the narrator. She's telling him of her sorrow. Her complaint has become more personal. Zion is calming down and opening up to the one who sees her. Chapter 3 is where Zion recognizes her suffering and yet the truth of her God. And she breaks down in tears and confusion as her very existence seems to be a contradiction. Now we get to chapter 4. The tears have stopped. Zion's mind has settled, and she now begins to understand her suffering and its wretched beauty. The narrator stands at her side, completely immersed in her pain. Zion has remembered hope and can now truly suffer. Chapter 4 is here because it reminds us that hope is not the end. That though we see hope and can fall back on truth, we are still here, still in the middle of our suffering, still wrestling through our existence. The poem begins with a grim picture of how nothing is as it should be. The impossible has happened. Pure gold has grown dim. In verse 1, precious sons of Zion, once fine gold, are now fragile clay pots. In verse 2, mothers neglect their children. In verse 3, the royalty live in dirt. Verse 5, and human life desires death. In verse 9, the narrator observes how backwards the city and its people have become, and his description cries out, this is not how it should be. The narrator then moves on to tell of why this nation has been turned upside down. The Lord let out his anger and wrath in verse 11. He has done what no one thought possible in verse 12. Why? Because the appointed moral leaders of the nation murdered the righteousness they were supposed to defend in verse 13 through 15. God did this, verse 16 because Zion was not as it should have been. This picture of gold growing dim in verse 1 is a statement to say that the impossible has happened. Pure gold doesn't tarnish simply because pure gold does not combine well with oxygen and therefore it doesn't rust, doesn't tarnish, it doesn't corrode. But here the narrator tells us that it has tarnished, that the impossible has happened. The picture that even the jackals nurse their young while human mothers have become cruel like the ostrich is again telling us that things have been turned upside down. Ostriches are known for being forgetful when it comes to their eggs and Job references them 
in Job chapter 39, verse 13 through 16, and he says, The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Mothers should care for their children, and yet the mothers of Zion are unable to care for theirs. Verse 4 continues by describing the starving of children. Zion's people are unable to feed their own kids. And verse 6 compares the destruction of the city to that of the destruction of Sodom. Now the destruction of Sodom, which was the very representation of evil during its time, was swift, so swift that the people didn't suffer. And yet God's chosen people are punished and forced to suffer through it. Nothing is as it should be. The suffering that these people endure should not be happening. And yet wrath came to the holy children of God because the holy children of God blasphemed the name of God before the world. The people's world was turned upside down long before God's wrath came upon them. Things are not as they should be, and it began with the righteous people of God murdering righteousness. In the next section, the narrator offers an honest assessment of Zion's sin. The holy leaders of the nation became corrupt. The prophets and priests, those that mediate between God and man and were appointed to uphold righteousness and holiness, themselves they became destroyers of righteousness and holiness. The priests were called to perform the sacrifices and thus cleanse the people of their sin. They were themselves to be clean, pure, and holy so that they could offer these sacrifices, but they became unclean. Just as Jesus mediates between us and God, the priests were appointed to bridge the gap between God and man. But they failed and thus cut off the people from their God. We must not consider Zion's sin as small or meaningless. God's wrath is just, and the people are finally able to clearly see that. They're finally able to clearly see that the the justice displayed through their punishment. They recognize the severity of their sin, and they accept their punishment. Where there was once a rage-filled, uncontrolled outcry, there is now a hint of sorrow, a hint of regret, and a glimpse of wisdom. Chapter 4 is the eerie silence after the noise of destruction. After the rage of an argument, it is the next day, wounds still fresh, but exhausted and calmed by the outpouring of unfiltered expression. And so the people now speak, finally able to recount the tragedy after overcoming their exhaustion. They speak of the terrors they have survived, 
how though they waited, no help came in verse 17, how the enemy smothered them with no chance for escape, verse 18 and 19, how even the leaders, God's anointed, could not escape in verse 20. God's judgment was complete. The people finally, having recognized the justice in their destruction, cry out for true justice. As the people of Zion were judged, so too will their enemies be judged. Verse 21 and 22. Zion waited and looked for help from other nations. Babylon had many enemies, and surely someone would stand behind Judah. But no one came. Zion was abandoned, left alone and defenseless, and her waiting for help turned to waiting for destruction. The attack of the enemy was so smothering that the streets the people once freely walked were now a danger. Their home became their prison as they awaited execution. Weakened by hunger and despair, they could not outrun their enemy. There was truly no escape. The enemy wasn't just taking their lives, but was wiping out their hope. And that's the true suffering of Zion. The very life and breath of the nation, the promise of God through the Davidic covenant, the king, was captured, thus completing Zion's judgment. Nothing was left. Hope was dying. But Zion begins to understand her suffering and the justice of God. And now she can proclaim justice to the world. As scholar Andrew Dearman says, Zion's enemy is actually called on to rejoice and be glad because the cup is about to be passed and they will be harshly judged in the future. Partaking of a celebratory cup which turns on its drinker and leads to drunkenness and judgment. It's a proverbial motif of judgment throughout the Old Testament. The content of the cup initially tastes good, but it, can, but it contains the wrath of judgment soon to be dispensed. Zion's judgment has passed, and her suffering too will come to an end. She is allowing herself to suffer, and she realizes that there is purpose in it. She is able to see the end, but she also recognizes that for things to be made new, she must suffer the destruction of the old. But why? After the truth proclaimed in chapter 3, why are we again dragged through the sorrow of this people? Shouldn't we have ended on the seemingly high point in chapter 3? Why must we suffer beyond the recognition of hope? We ask these questions, I believe, because we do not understand hope, nor do we understand suffering. And it's not because we just don't know that we don't understand, but it's because of selfishness, pride, and idolatry. We avoid the truth because it's uncomfortable. So many of us end our suffering in chapter 3. We hit the high note and we call it good. And in doing so, we have not allowed ourselves to suffer. We see the light at the end of the tunnel and we say, that's good enough for me. And rather than striving to reach the light, we are content to simply see it and we live our lives in darkness 
only to be touched by the promise of hope rather than to strive after hope realized. Zion refused, Zion refused to sit in her darkness and she presses on, propelled through her suffering by the light of hope because Zion knows that hope is not an idea, it is not a mirage, but hope is a tangible reality. Chapter 3 is not the end of Lamentations. The truth proclaimed in chapter 3 is not the end of Zion's suffering. The great truth that we hear in chapter 3 is right in the middle of suffering. Right in the middle. It's not a way out of the pain, but it's a way through the suffering. When we suffer, we are stripped of all comfort, all pleasure, and of every false idea of hope we once held. We find ourselves broken beyond comprehension, and we suffer because we recognize this is not how it should be. When we suffer, we are able to see the world as God sees it. It's when we cry out for hope, when we remember the truth of who God is, that we become acutely aware of the vastness of our sin And our self-righteous anger toward God gives way to a true regret of sin. And we are then able to truly name our sin as Zion does in verses 11 through 16. We can see, as God does, that this world, that this life, is not how it was meant to be. Our rage becomes sorrow, and now we can truly suffer. That is why chapter 4 is here. It forces us, no matter how uncomfortable, to properly suffer. And now that we begin to see that through Zion, we really need to take a closer look at suffering and its relationship to hope. So let's talk about what hope is and what suffering is. Hope does not exist as a way to end suffering but a means to allow us to suffer sufficiently. To live in and through the suffering. Hope gives strength, courage, and the will to suffer. Hope is not an end to suffering. It is the ability to suffer because it shows us that there is something more, something better, an end to the pain. Hope is the light at the end of the tunnel that allows us to suffer through the darkness for the reality of something better. Because of hope, we suffer. If there was nothing better to look forward to, then no matter how bad this life was, it would simply just be, and we wouldn't suffer. It's easy for us to think of hope and suffering as opposites or to maybe think suffering is the absence of hope. And this is because we view hope as good and suffering as bad. I think this is wrong. It's because of hope that we suffer and it is for hope that we suffer. And though it is hard, I'm convinced that suffering is the beauty of this life, especially a life with Christ. We must know what hope 
and suffering are, what they are for, and what they do. We must understand them and recognize that they are inseparable. Hope is not an end to suffering. Hope is purpose in suffering. It is courage to suffer. It is strength to suffer. And it is reason to suffer. Suffering is not evil. It is not senseless. It is not despair. And it is not the absence of hope. Suffering, I think, is a proper response to sin and death. It is necessary and it is deeply mysterious. And it's necessary because it forces us to live in the reality of hope, to hang on to the truth of God even when God is absent and his very existence is in question. Suffering forces us to leave ourselves behind our strength, our ability, our desire, and even our own hopes and cling to what must be true, the love of God. Suffering forces us to be human. So what is suffering? It's a question I've spent countless hours thinking on, and I'm never quite sure if I can pinpoint it. But I think suffering is grieving the loss of what we once held so that we can look to and live for something greater. If you do not allow yourself to lament, to properly suffer the pain and loss of this world, then you are disallowing yourself to grasp the hope of God. You must not be satisfied with merely seeing hope. You must suffer you must let go you must let hope drag you through the loss and leave it all behind so that you can obtain hope we often do not suffer for the gospel because we are clinging to our old selves we refuse to let go of comfort satisfaction pride and pleasure You must suffer the loss of yourself every day. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow hope. Follow Jesus. Jesus is urging us to suffer for the greater hope that he suffered to bring us. Every day you must suffer because there is something so much greater out there than your own personal comfort and gain. It's not easy to let go of all we once held dear, but God demands that we cling only to him. You must suffer. You must suffer the loss of yourself because you have died in Christ and take hold of new life and hope because you have risen to a new life in the resurrection of Christ. I truly say it as words of encouragement, and I know it doesn't sound like that because we don't like it, but in encouragement and hope, I tell you, you must suffer. Because suffering is the process of God stripping us of everything but himself so 
that we see him and hope in him with a vicious desperation. This poem is arguably the most hopeful in the book because Zion realizes that God's judgment has ended and as she grieves and suffers the loss of all that she had, she can now start looking forward. God does not speak and he does not reveal to his people his plan. But Zion, in her suffering, is now in a place where she will listen if God speaks. At this time, I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up, and I just want to leave you with some questions to to really, truly wrestle and think through, and not just today, uh, but every day. Will you suffer? Will you lament the loss of your old self and move on to your new life in Christ? Or will you avoid the suffering and only move within your old self? Do you realize, do we really realize the greatness of hope that God himself is? And are we willing to suffer for it? God has given you the greatest reason to suffer. But oftentimes, and here in chapter 4, he does not reveal to us the end of our suffering. He lets us sit there. God, here in Lamentations, still does not speak, and he allows Zion to suffer the loss of herself so that she can be made new. So please hear me in a voice of humility and truth. And believe me, there is part of me that does not want to say this and wants to stop thinking about this and just get out because I want to avoid what is difficult and I'm tired of suffering through this life. But you must suffer So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your great wisdom and truth. We ask that you please continue to reveal yourself to us. And though this life is mysterious and we have so many questions as to why we live like this or why you have done this, please allow us to grab hold of you to hope in you, to trust in you, and leave everything else behind. Father, thank you for your son who suffered the most. And thank you for you who you were willing to suffer the loss of your son. And thank you for the hope that you have given us in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And please let us not get stuck in the darkness only looking at the distant light but please give us the courage and the strength and the will by your spirit to suffer for the hope you have given us thank you again for your son the great gift and the great lord that he is it's in his name that we pray amen